Hello, I'm Karen Pascal, the Executive Director of the Henry Nouwen Society, and I want to welcome you to a new episode of our podcast, Henry Nouwen, Now and Then. Over a year ago, I interviewed Father John Deere in preparation for our Voices for Peace conference. But unfortunately, because of COVID, we had to cancel this live gathering. We've rescheduled this as an online webinar for September 15th. I hope you'll join us for this very important international gathering. In preparation for our webinar, I have asked John Deere to join me for a podcast. John Deere is an internationally recognized voice and leader for peace and nonviolence. He's the co-founder of Campaign Nonviolence and the Nonviolent Cities Project. He's been nominated several times for the Nobel Peace Prize, and he's the author or editor of more than 35 books. Today, we're going to do a deep dive into John's latest book, The Beatitudes of Peace, Meditations on the Beatitudes, Peacemaking, and the Spiritual Life. John, as I read your book, the word that leaps out to me from every page is nonviolence. You state God is nonviolence. God's kingdom is based on nonviolence, and God's justice requires nonviolence. It's through this prism that you look at the Beatitudes found in Matthew chapter 5. John, the Beatitudes outlined how Jesus wanted his followers to live. I confess your take is very fresh and challenging. Tell us what you want us to grasp deeply from your understanding of the Beatitudes. Oh, well, thank you so much, Karen, for having me on and everybody at the Henry Nowen Society. It's wonderful to be here. And um, Well, see, what happened for me was I discovered in putting together an anthology of Gandhi's writings that Gandhi read from the Sermon on the Mount every day in the morning and the evening for 45 years. And he's not even a Christian. And that really shocked me. That was about 25 years when I discovered that. And I'm a real student of Gandhi and Dr. King. And Gandhi says this clumsy word nonviolence is the only way to sum up all of Christianity and humanity and our hope. And um, so I've been studying and teaching nonviolence for over 40 years now. But he says, Gandhi, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, are the greatest teachings of nonviolence in human history. They're like a how to be a human being book. And so Gandhi thought, well, I want to be a person of nonviolence. Remember, he's leading the revolution in India, and all hell is breaking out around him. And he says, I have to go back and read my, my manual of nonviolence every day. And he, he, uh, he did a one-hour meditation every morning, and then one hour in the evening, and they would have read a few verses from Matthew 5, some of the Beatitudes or some of uh, Offer No Violent Resistance to One that Does Evil and Love Your Enemies. And uh, I went to India with Gandhi's grandson to see where he did that. And so I, <clears throat> first of all, I've started to try to do that. And then I started teaching and writing about the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mountain. Karen, in, you know, all the books, there's only five books in the world in like the last 75 years on the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. Really? All these books on the spiritual life, and nobody's talking about the, spiritual, uh, the Sermon on the Mount or the Beatitudes. We're talking about everything else. And, um, and it's the problem, because we are literally doing the, everything but the one thing Gandhi said. 
which is study nonviolence and learn nonviolence from the nonviolent Jesus who proclaims in Matthew 5 that God is nonviolent, that the kingdom of God is nonviolent. And it's all right there. So I wrote my little book, The Beatitudes of Peace, to begin to unpack that. And um, I even have a blurb from Jimmy Carter. I met with him. He invited me to come out and give a little re- have a little retreat session with him at his house a few years ago. And he was amazed and put a blurb on the book. Anyway, I'm just saying, for me, it's all or nothing. And, um, and in terms of Henry, Henry now and my friend, I remember... He would love all this because he was always supporting my work to promote nonviolence. But shortly before he died, you know, he wrote a little pamphlet on the Beatitudes, which was privately published. And I remember him sending it to me based on a retreat he did uh, for L'Arche on using the Beatitudes as the way to live the Christian life at L'Arche. So I know Henry would love what I'm trying to do because I'm trying to say the Beatitudes are the blueprint for our personal lives, how to how to be nonviolent in the day to day life, which is so hard now, and our and in North America, and in the whole world, and facing nuclear war and catastrophic climate change, and um, global poverty, it's all there. I really convinced the older I get, every sentence uh, that Jesus says has a way out for us. And the Beatitudes are kind of like Zen koans, Aaron. You know, you really can't answer them. You just have to sit with them every day, as Gandhi did, and let them work on you so that you begin to live your life according to the Beatitudes. And that's the invitation. Well, I, I certainly felt that as as I went through chapter after chapter, as you kind of opened them up. I found that you were looking at them through kind of a fresh prism for me and I was seeing them freshly but you're absolutely right they are the they are the guidebook for how to be uh, a follower of Jesus that Jesus said this is this is the way and it is a profound profound sermon it uh, it deserves our attention um it's interesting to me that you connected to the Beatitudes way back in 1982, where you, when you were on a, an adventure in, in Israel and you visited the Beatitudes Chapel at the Sea of Galilee. And at that point, it, I, I read this, that you, you prayed that you'd become a Beatitudes person, you know, that you would become somebody who, where this would be, uh, it would be a focus and a, a life guide for you. Uh, are you sort of just uh, amazed to see that it's still kind of the thing that pulls you forward. Well, I think this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus, unfortunately. Mm. <laughs> that, in other words, he actually wants us to live the Sermon on the Mount. He doesn't want us to do a lot of stuff we're doing. And, you know, at the end, wow, Karen, you know, I read the collected the 100 volumes of Gandhi's writings, 100 uh-huh. volumes. And he used to quote, Often throughout his life, the last end of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? And Gandhi thought, why do all these Christians go around saying Lord, Lord, but don't live according to the Sermon on the Mount? He couldn't figure it out. They were saying they're fundamentalists. We live according to the word of God, except the Sermon on the Mount. But anyway, what happened to me was I went to Israel in the summer of 1982, just before I entered the seminary. And um, 
I literally hitchhiked through Israel to see where Jesus lived, and I camped out at the Sea of Galilee for two weeks illegally. And um, Israel broke out into war with Lebanon, and we killed six, it was all orchestrated by the U.S., of course, and we killed 60,000 people there. Mm-hmm. And, and the Sea of Galilee is right on the border of Lebanon. So I'm camping out there. And I'm hanging out at the Chapel of the Beatitudes. Now, there were no tourists there. Everything was canceled because of the war. And uh, I was all alone, literally, and literally sleeping by the water. And I, um, I'm in the Chapel of Beatitudes reading them. And they hit me like a thunderbolt because the thought was, I thought someone else is supposed to do this. You mean to tell me? That if I'm going to be a, my plan was to be a pious priest, that might, you want me to live the Beatitudes? <laughs> and that was, that was my conversion. I think every Christian has to go through that conversion where you think, well, it's the point of the priest or the bishop or the minister or the pope, somebody else, to live the Sermon on the Mount. No, that's not what they say. This is what the genius of Gandhi was. He wants us to take them personally. And I decided, I went standing there by the Sea of Galilee, trying to say, how could I do that? Why not? When I saw all these jets swoop down over the Sea of Galilee, now they broke the sound barrier. So there, there was these huge sonic booms, almost knocked me off my feet, and flew overhead and dropped a whole bunch of bombs, killing people, just as I was grappling with that sentence. And uh, I thought... Um, you know, I took it as a revelation of the world and versus God's word and decided, right, I would try to spend my life on the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. And here I am 40 years later, um, actually caring to the weak. And, um, oh, maybe it's 39 years later. <laughs> but anyway... Uh, uh, I'm still grappling with this, and as you know, recently, I, last year, I, because of the pandemic, I, I organized a new online group, which we can talk about later, the Beatitude Center for the Nonviolent Jesus. But I can't stress enough that, to me, this is the most, this is the core, this is the teachings of Jesus, and um, we avoid them like the plague, because uh, the culture how shall I put it? The culture teaches the anti-Beatitudes, an anti-Sermon on the Mount, which is, you know, blessed are the rich, blessed are the war makers, kill your enemies. And it's very easy to go along with the culture and not with the Beatitudes of Jesus, which are very tough, which is why Gandhi read them every day. You know, you state war making is the ultimate spiritual lie. War has nothing to do with God the God of peace. I, I find that profound. Is there such thing as a just war? No. And all of that is over with, and Pope Francis has been saying that, and the Vatican has begun to start saying that. And as you may know, five years ago, I was at this historic conference at the Vatican, uh, 80 Catholic leaders from around the planet for three days. And um, we issued a statement with the Vatican that there is no such thing as a just war anymore. And that, and we helped Pope Francis draft this the church's first statement ever on nonviolence, which I hope everyone will look up. It was the January 1st, 2017 World Day of Peace Statement. And we asked the Pope to write an encyclical on nonviolence. 
And the Pope has done dramatic things based on that conference. He's now completely outlawed every every inch of the death penalty in the Catholic Church. And then he's outlawed deterrence and the existence of nuclear weapons and working on nuclear, building nuclear weapons is a mortal sin. Catholics can't do it. He went way beyond uh, John Paul. And now he's issued this call for nonviolence. So those days are all over. And I can cite chapter and verse, but they basically have nothing to do with the gospel because Jesus commands us in the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies. He doesn't say, however, if they're really bad and you follow these seven conditions, you can bomb the hell out of them. That's all made <laughs> up over the 1,700 years. Yeah, just to get away. We, we want to do everything we can to get away from the Sermon on the Mount. And um, we have. So, you know, it's so it's heresy and blasphemy the way Christians are living. If you're going to be a Christian, you can have nothing to do with war. You can't support war, wage war, have guns, build weapons, vote for war, because you're a peacemaker, according to the Beatitudes. You're a person who practices universal nonviolent love. And all our lives have to change. And you're going, uh, Karen, you're going, John, chill out, man. You need to stop. <laughs> no, I think we need fierce and ferocious and excited people like you to wake us from the dead, to be quite honest. I think that's your, I, th- I think that's one of the calls on your life. I love the way you quote Joe Hill, uh, who's an inspiration to you. And he says, just don't just mourn, organize. And that really reminds me of you, John. You are, there's a kind of vitality in you about this that has caught the vision and won't be still about it and won't be quiet about it. Now, you say here, the gospel proposes a specific set of economics, what you call the economics of God's reign. Can you explain that to me? What do you mean? No. <laughs> you can't explain it? You just wrote it? Tell no, me. <laughs> exactly. And that's why Gandhi had to read this every single day. And I can write that sentence, but... Um, you know, to understand it is is the spiritual journey, Karen. Yeah. So, so for example, I, I remember thinking, if you were Christ and you were going to sum everything up in a great sermon, your great sermon, what would it be? Well, you and I would not say the Beatitudes or the six antitheses. You have heard it said, but I say to you, love your enemies. The first sentence is about... Um, the economics of God's reign. Blessed are the poor, the reign of God is theirs. And that's shocking. So the first sentence in Jesus's major speech, this was like, I call it his basic campaign platform speech. And, you know, right away, you know, throughout the rest of his life, when it says, you know, he's teaching the crowds and does the multiplication of loaves and fishes, he's teaching them the Sermon on the Mount. And when he does the civil disobedience in the temple, And it says he spent the rest of the day teaching. He's teaching them the Sermon on the Mount. This is his message. But it starts with the poor. God is on the side of the poor and the poor in spirit who don't have money, those who don't cling to pride, privilege, possessions, and those who are on a journey of, I call it, downward mobility, that into the economics of God's reign. St. Francis said that when you read the Beatitudes, the only way to understand them is to stand upside down. Isn't that great? <laughs> he said that. He said everything in the sermon, in the Beatitudes, and the Sermon on the Mount is upside down, and so we have to stand on our heads to begin to see the world the way Jesus does. So Jesus is saying, God is with the poor. 
and the oppressed and the marginalized and the disenfranchised, which, by the way, means God is not with the rich, with the powerful. If you've got money and possessions, you're moving away from God. Why? Because if you've got money and possessions, you don't need God. You've got a nice bank account and you're and you've got investments in, in Wall Street and you're good to go and you're not going <laughs> to die. If you're poor, you don't have anything and you need God. And that's all you got. And Jesus says, scandal. I mean, everything he says is a scandal. He says the kingdom of God already belongs to the poor, not just when they die. They have the kingdom of God now. You and I don't care. We are so that's why one like Henry taught us. That's why Henry was so radical. It sounds so obvious, but to leave Harvard and move in with Larsh is one of the radical, most radical stories I've ever heard. Because he gave up the world of of wealth and pride and privilege to be with not just poor people, but total powerlessness and vulnerability, which is the definition of the poor in spirit. And Henry, believe it or not, he, in his own crazy way, was on a journey of downward mobility. And that's what we all have to be. And um, it's a powerful thing. But um, I don't understand it. So the kingdom of God is com- the complete opposite of the world. Because the anti-Beatitudes, the culture of war and the culture of violence and the culture of greed says, blessed are the rich. The reign of this world is theirs. Jesus says, blessed are the poor. The reign of God is theirs. And uh, which side do you want to be on, you know? And um, but let me just suggest to people, (laughs) we're all headed toward death. Uh, Just to cut to the chase, we're going to end up dying in bed of cancer or something and being poor in spirit. And I'm just saying, hello, you want to start getting ready instead of having to go through a massive shock. You want to start letting go now everything and getting rid of your possessions and tithing your money to the poor and befriending the poor and which I've tried to do all my life in the hopes that they will share with me the one thing they already have which is the kingdom of God and I've experienced that but I don't understand it I don't understand it it's a teaching and we have to read it every day and we read it every day I love the way you connect through your book the Beatitudes to the care of the planet. That is so much a concern today. We are concerned by injustice. I mean, if we talk about what's slamming us these days, it would be the injustice that just refuses to stay behind closed doors. And 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 the uh, fact that we're, we're surrounded by a planet that's saying, uh, enough, 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 enough. Uh, but you connect the Beatitudes to that. Tell me a bit about, you know, that journey that has has connected all of that. I will. And my friends, of course, Karen, say you're totally over the top, John. (laughs) But I wrote this book on the Beatitudes. And then I wrote an entire book on the third Beatitude. And they, my friends, say, you're crazy. Because uh, Jesus said that 2,000 years ago. Let me just talk a little bit about that. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Okay, fine. We've all heard that. Isn't that nice and lovely? Very pious. Who knows what the hell it means? Blah, blah, blah. And so um, I was writing, you forgive me, I write books that nobody reads, but I was writing this book on Thomas Merton called Thomas Merton Peacemaker for Orvis, 
and it's based on, I'm trying to unpack Merton's teachings on nonviolence. So Merton wrote a very, very difficult, very scholarly essay on nonviolence in 1965 called uh, Blessed Are the Meek, The Christian Roots of Nonviolence, which he dedicated to our mutual friend, Joan Baez. Okay, I've been read, I've read it a hundred times. I still don't understand it. And I'm, you know, writing about that in my Merton book. And Merton says that the biblical word meekness is not humility, passivity, isn't that nice, you're meek. It's not that at all. I mean, it certainly has part of that in gentleness, but Merton says, I'm not kidding you, blessed are the meek is, blessed is Martin Luther King. Radical, active, daring, public nonviolence. Isn't that shocking? Merton said that, that, that the biblical verse there is Jesus is affirming Gandhi and Martin Luther King and Dorothy Day. There's nothing passive about those people. And I remember thinking, wow. And I really was taking that to heart and spent a lot of time sitting with it. And then one day, <laughs> I mean, I've read this every day for 40 years. And I suddenly go, wait a second. What does that have to do with inheriting the earth? And I start to put two and two together because I never heard that in my whole life. I never heard. And I've been in the peace movement for 40 years. I never heard anybody say active nonviolence leads to oneness with creation. Now think about that. They will inherit the earth. Yes. Yes. So Jesus 2000 years ago is talking about what we would call now Gandhian Kenyan nonviolence. And he says, that leads to total oneness with creation. And I remember I was living on the top of a mountain in New Mexico one day going, why have I never heard that? Daniel Berrigan never talked with me about that. My friend and teacher, Henry didn't talk about that. And I realized none of us have ever been taught that. So why? Well, because 1700 years ago with Constantine, we threw out the Sermon on the Mount, began to come up with the just war theory, and for the last 1,700 years, we've basically ignored the Sermon on the Mount and said, you don't need to do that anymore. You can have the just war theory. So those are just nice, pious platitudes, but they don't apply to the world. Um, and so we've rejected nonviolence. If you reject gospel nonviolence, you will not be one with the earth. You will not inherit the earth. If you go into total violence, you will end up destroying the earth. And I remember thinking, oh my God, catastrophic climate change. It all makes total sense. What we've done, especially over the last 150 years and the last 50 years, digging up fossil fuels, raising the uh, global heat and melting the polar ice caps and now having all these terrible storms and droughts. We're not one with the earth and we're destroying the earth. And I said this um, to the number one environmentalist in the planet, my friend Bill McKibben, who has a blurb on my book, They Will Help Inherit the Earth. And he said to me, he said to me, he was the first person who wrote a book on climate change 40 years ago. And he said to me, John, I've never thought of nonviolence and being connected, nonviolence and violence being connected to climate change and solidarity earth. He said, John, you're the first person on the planet to say that. I said, no, Jesus said that 2,000 years ago. And Bill went, 
oh yeah, that's right. Because <laughs> <laughs> even he didn't see that. Yeah. And, but Karen, there it is, the third sentence of the Beatitudes. Yeah, there it Isn't is. Isn't that incredible when you start to unpack it like that? Forgive me for getting excited because it still excites me. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what you've done for me. I mean, I it's it's really a call to read these daily and dig deeper into it. But I'm going to encourage people to get your book because I love the the wonderful, uh, in a sense, angle or prism that you take on it and, and what you give us. Here's a lovely quote from your book. Seek justice as if it were your food and drink, your bread and water, as if there were a ma- it were a matter of life and death, which it is, because the struggle for justice for the world's poor and oppressed is a matter of life and death. It is a spiritual matter. Within our relationship to the God of justice and peace, those who give their lives to that struggle, Jesus promises, will be satisfied. I know it's something you've done. I know you've given your, yourself to that struggle. Can I ask you something? This is a crazy thing, but I don't know if our audience knows. How many times have you been arrested and put in jail for this struggle that you refuse to give up? Not enough. <laughs> I've been arrested about yeah, about 85 times, done about a year in prison, and been in court hundreds and hundreds of times. I've done a lot of other actions where the police didn't arrest us. My last action was just before the pandemic. Jane Fonda and I and 140 others, Reverend William Barber, shut down the Senate office building calling for an end to digging up fossil fuels. And we spent a day together in in jail. This is with Jane Fonda's great new environmental group called Fire Drill Fridays, which I hope everybody will be part of. Look up firedrillfridays.org, which I'm very involved now. Um, so, but the thing is that, so it's very strange, Karen. That's why I say the Beatitudes are Zen koans. They're not poetry, but they're mysterious wisdom sayings that you have to sit with and live your way into. So he's saying, blessed are the meek, blessed are people of active nonviolence. This should lead you to oneness with creation. And that's why I walk every day now outside. I'm trying to be at one with creation as a radical uh, way of resistance to uh, catastrophic climate change and killing Mother Earth. I'm trying to appreciate Mother Earth. Well, that is going to lead you to work for justice. The next beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, they will be satisfied. So the more you're one with how Earth and the poor are being destroyed, the more you're going to stand up publicly through a nonviolent life and work for justice and peace. And um, it's a way of life. So you learn to let go of results. Yeah. And that's what Merton and Henry would have talked about with me. You know, it's, he was, that's why he was so encouraging to me. John, this, you're on to something here. This is the Christian way of life, whether you make a difference or not. And what I found, I mean, what the heck does Jesus mean? You'll be satisfied. I think I wrote in the book that for me, it means you'll find ultimate meaning in your life. Now, when I die, I hope to be set, to be able to say, it doesn't matter so much whether or not I made a difference, because God is on the side of justice. But I, I have a deep sense of meaning and purpose that I spent my life trying to be on the side of justice for the poor and Mother Earth. And that's no joke, um, because a lot of people don't have meaning in, li- in their lives anymore. They're so lost. And I say, get, get with the struggle. 
Pick some cause that you feel passionate about. Okay, the poor or children or the environment, um, animal rights. In some ways, I don't care what it is. As long as you got one foot in the global movement for justice and peace, and you're, you're tithing your time a little bit to be on the side of justice, it's going to have a very positive effect on your life uh, and a disarming and healing effect because it's spiritual work. Yes. Now you're doing God's work. Yes. And just to go on with that, Karen, just for a second, it's very strange that the next verse is, and then blessed are the merciful, they will be shown mercy. And I think there's some mysterious connection there that I don't get, but he's, you're working for justice on the one hand, you're hungry and thirst for it. That's how passionate you are. On the other hand, you're infinitely merciful. You don't condemn anyone. You let everyone off the hook. You're exploring new depths of nonviolence and compassion, and you're experiencing the mercy of God. These are so beautiful mysteries. Now, you did one thing that was very special and is a treasure. People might not know about it. There's a beautiful book called The Road to Peace. And it was a book that you edited after Henry died. Henry died 25 years ago. But after Henry died, you went into the archives at Yale and you found some treasures. Tell me a little bit about how Henry got involved in your life and what kind of words did he speak into you that have stayed with you? Oh, thank you. Well, I, uh, I heard Henry speak at the Sojourner's Peace Pentecost in May 1985, the day before I flew to El Salvador to live for the summer in a refugee camp that was getting bombed by the United States. And I was going to be under the tutelage of the Jesuits at the university who were all later assassinated. So I was terrified, excited. And here comes Henry now and and he spoke for almost two hours. Can you believe that? <laughs> and he had a thousand people in the palm of his hand. I've never heard any anything like it to this day. This life-changing talk. Um, basically, he was quoting John 21, and he was saying, yeah, yeah, you're all working for peace and justice. This is all activists he was speaking to. But the question is not, Jesus isn't saying is, what have you done for me? The question is, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Like he says to Peter at the end of the gospel. It just turned the whole conference upside down. And he said, uh, so I say to you what Jesus said to Peter, when you were younger, you went and did what you want. But when you're older, someone will put a belt around you and lead you where you'd rather not go. Follow me. And that was my mantra through El Salvador. And for many, many years, actually for the next 10 years of my life. And I wrote Henry a long letter about it. And we, he just took me under his wing and wrote to me regularly. Literally, I think he sent me every, every book he ever wrote, every manuscript, every pamphlet, and, uh, and encouraged me. And then I went to prison for a plowshares action. And uh, I was thinking, Karen, recently, uh, I think he must have had a note on his desk. Because I'm facing 20 years in prison. I only ended up doing nine months in a cell. I never went outside. But he understood that. I was 33. We were good friends by then. And I think he had a note on his desk that every Monday morning, write John in prison. Because I would get a package from him every Friday. And uh, he didn't have to do that. 
And it was really helpful because he was the last person I would expect to support me, frankly. He's a busy guy. I would expect, (laughs) I could go on and on about that. And I wrote a book about my journal from jail, which Henry really loved. But anyway, um, yeah, he died and I was just negotiating with him. I was going to come and spend Thanksgiving with him that year. And at his funeral, I was kind of scales fell from my eyes. And, you know, I told you this before. I was, let's just say, quite full of myself as a young whippersnapper snapper activist. And I used to tell Henry, hey, man, when are you going to start doing something serious for peace and justice? Can you imagine? And um, and then at his <laughs> funeral, yeah, he, but he, he could handle me. That was one of the, he was my pastor and he could, he wasn't afraid to take my young activist anger and um, let it go. He didn't, I, I mean, he may have been hurt by me, but he was, he stayed with me. And then so at the funeral, I realized all he had done because I met all his friends from these activists to Fred Rogers. All his friends became my friends very quickly and like actual friends. So I went to Yale and I'm going through the archives and I was told I was the first person to actually go through his archives. I mean, really spent a week with him. And that's when I found, among other things, Henry's journal from Selma. And none of his friends knew he would even gone to Selma. He wrote about it for a Dutch newspaper. So it was in Dutch. So I found it and didn't know what it was, but I had it translated into English. Oh my God, it's brilliant. And some people have said, it's the best thing ever written about the Selma march. You know, John Lewis, the bridge over Selma, Dr. King, people shot and killed. And I was just rereading it the other day and it still stands up. I found a lot of other stuff he wrote passionate essays against nuclear weapons and um, basically living a life of peace. And I think the book is terrific. It's called The Road to Peace. It's still in print. We then did another smaller book just with his writings against nuclear weapons called Peace Work, which is in a beautiful hardback edition. And I think, I hope people will get it. And you'll see there, he uses the Beatitudes. He talks about blessed are the peacemakers. And Henry says outrageous stuff. I say it and people get, you know, mad at me or roll my eyes. But Henry Nowen can say it and no one will say anything because he's our our spiritual teacher. He says peacemaking is not a sideline for, you know, activists like me. This is the hallmark of Christianity. I urge listeners to go and read Henry just on the Beatitude, Blessed are the Peacemakers. He's saying they shall be called the sons of daughters of God. And that's at the core of Henry's teachings, the life of the beloved. We are the beloved sons and daughters of God. And I used to correspond with Henry about this. Henry, that means we're peacemakers. If you're following the Beatitudes and Henry, you've got to stop just this is what I told him. You can't just tell people that their life, they're the beloved of God. They're the nice, beloved sons and daughters of God. You have to reverse the Beatitude and say, therefore, they're peacemakers like God. And they need to go into the culture of war and make peace. Oh, and that's Henry powerful. Wrote that's me, powerful. <laughs> Henry wrote to me and said, people are too sick, John. They can't handle it. You can try to say that, John, but all I can tell people is God loves them. And I told him he was wrong. And I'm here I am today still saying it. 
I wish, but I think as I've gone back to Henry's writings, I think he still said it. Had Henry lived, had he lived, I would have had that argument. I would have continued to argue with him. Saying, <laughs> You're Henry now, and you need to, you need to step up like Thomas Merton did, and push people farther. Remember, he didn't publish his book on peace during his lifetime, and I uh, so I did after he died. But all of that was just to say thank you to Henry because. He helped me so much to stay focused on Jesus. It's exactly what I needed. I love that. Um, now, you have started something called the Beatitude Center. Do you want to tell us what that is and tell us a little bit about what you're doing right now? Yeah, so with the pandemic, I started to do, like everybody, and like the Henry Nowen Society, doing Zoom workshops and podcasts. And um, so I've organized a new online nonprofit organization called the Beatitude Center for the Nonviolent Jesus. And the website is beatitudecenter.org. And I urge everyone to go and look it up. And we have a Zoom every other week where I'm doing teachings on uh, the Beatitudes and Jesus and nonviolence. And I have maybe 20 free podcasts on the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, Dr. King, Gandhi, Dorothy Day, Thomas Merton, all our heroes. Someday I'm going to do one on Henry. And then um, we I have started having guest speakers. So Robert Ellsberg did an incredible Zoom a couple of months ago with us on the Beatitudes and the Saints. And we're getting about 100 people. It, you know, I'm asking people for a donation because this is how I'm making a livelihood and I'm just getting by. Uh, and we had um, other great people speaking recently. I'm about to do a series on the Psalms and in September and October. Oh my God, Karen, I have Reverend Jim Lawson. I'm going to do a conversation with him. He's almost 95. He was one of Dr. King's best friends. He's the guy who, taught nonviolence in the civil rights movement, who brought Dr. King to Memphis. Dr. King said he's the greatest teacher of nonviolence in the world. He's been my friend for 40 years. He and I are going to do an hour and a half conversation on October 2nd. I hope everybody listens. He won't be around that much longer. It's, critic, it's, it's such a historic event we're about to have. Then I'm doing a... a, a two-Saturday, two-part series with Jim Forrest on on his friends, Dorothy Day, Thomas Merton, Daniel Berrigan, and Thich Nhat Hanh. He's written a book on each one of them. And then in October, uh, November, I think it's November 16th, I'm doing a special Zoom with Gandhi's grandson. Oh, my goodness. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Raj Mohan Gandhi, he's my friend, who lived with Gandhi in New Delhi the last two years of Gandhi's life. He used to have breakfast, lunch, and dinner with Gandhi as a boy. And he's written the definitive greatest biography of Gandhi. Now, I've read all of them. Yeah. I'm an authority on Gandhi, and this is incredible. And he's going to do a conversation. Folks, please join us, beatitudecenter.org. We will put all sorts of links. I promise you that. We'll put links 
on our page today. You'll get that. And we want to be sure everyone knows that you're coming to us September 15th for Voices for Peace at 7 o'clock. And uh, it will be a live webinar featuring uh, John Deere. And we have some other special guests. And I really would encourage our audience. And I promise you, we'll put links to all these other uh, events that you have coming up. I'm excited about it. I love the way you wrote in your book, as peacemakers, we are nonviolent to ourselves, nonviolent to all others, all creatures, and all creation. And we work publicly for a new world of nonviolence. John, I thank you that that's been your commitment, that you have been doing that. You've done it at great cost to yourself, but you're also calling all of us forward and saying, come, join the battle. We need you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, that sentence is kind of the fruit of my whole life's work. And um, even there, like I was practically raised by Daniel and Philip Berrigan, the famous activists, to be, you know, a frontline activist to, for the abolition of war and racism and poverty and nuclear weapons and environmental destruction. But I was also studying Gandhi and Dr. King. And then I have this relation close relationship with Henry Nouwen and Thich Nhat Hanh, who's a very been life friend all along too. You know, since I was a kid, I've had a very strange life having these amazing mentors. But they were they they would be saying, take care of yourself. You know, you have, if you're gonna be merciful to others, you have to learn to be merciful to yourself. If you want to be a peacemaker, the beatitude before that is blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God, which Gandhi thought was the hardest sentence in the entire Bible. Isn't that amazing? Wow. And in other words, pure of heart means total inner nonviolence. Well, it's taken me 40 years. I've been trying to I've been talking about nonviolence every single day of my life and trying to articulate it. And so I come down to that little formula you just read which I got in part from reading the Beatitudes. That's why I think we have barely begun to study the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. And I really urge people to like, take the next year and just read a little of the Sermon on the Mount every day for one year and try to work on it. But I came to the conclusion that means, number one, you have to be really nonviolent to yourself. So that means not beating yourself up. Where is violence inside of you? What do you what 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 part of you doesn't like yourself or the extreme of self-hatred, low self-esteem, um, anger, rage, hurts, wounds, constantly meditating over those, letting it go, learning to forgive, accepting Jesus's resurrection gift of peace, really beginning to cultivate interior nonviolence. And I see that in blessed are the pure in heart, and then also working on nonviolence in all your relationships, being meticulously nonviolent toward every human being, especially those you don't like, and then trying to figure out how to be nonviolent to creatures. We all have to become vegetarian and be nonviolent <laughs> to the earth, and you have to get involved in the movement. If you're not involved in the struggle, you're the problem, because that's not Christ either. If you're just being a very nice, quiet, peaceful person, I don't think you're following Jesus. You have to step up publicly and follow him as he's going on his campaign to Jerusalem, and you're going to get in trouble. And that leads to 
Blessed are those persecuted for the struggle for justice. You're going to, you have to start speaking out against war and environmental destruction and racism. People are going to get mad at you. And now you get to practice nonviolence. With all the energy I hear in you, with all the, the dynamism I hear in you, what place does contemplation and meditation have in that? How, like, I, I would guess that Henry must have been talking to you about those things as well. Let me hear, John, what, where does that play itself out in you? Well, so I was raised as a Jesuit, which meant a half hour of contemplative prayer with Jesus every day. And again, I, I take that as the Beatitudes. And that means for me, not centering prayer. And I have a long history with Buddhism and, and, and being with Thich Nhat Hanh on and off for 30 years. And I learned a lot from him, but I'm not a Buddhist. I sit with Jesus. I bring all of that. And that's Ignatian spirituality. I literally, Karen, when I say I sit with Jesus, uh, Karen, I tried to do it this morning. I have an empty chair next to where I sit. And I, I'm like a kindergarten level prayer. I pretend Jesus is there. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. And I go, good morning, Jesus. I actually drink coffee when I do this. And, <laughs> and I, I pray over what's happening and um, the day and where I'm feeling. And I ask him how he is. And do you want to say anything? So I'm living in relationship with Jesus. So that's a very Jesus-centered contemplative prayer. And I don't know, I think that's the only thing that has saved me from my own violence. Because living in relationship with a nonviolent Jesus, is, it means every single day I get disarmed a little bit more and healed a little bit more to stand up and speak for peace and work for peace as a nonviolent person um, or trying to be a nonviolent person. So you know, the gospel is a call to nonviolent action for justice, disarmament, and creation. But we are so steeped in violence. And Jesus, Gandhi said, the epitome of nonviolence. We can't do that without a contemplative practice. And we're really talking, uh, Karen, here about contemplative nonviolence. Our prayer and meditation time should be making us more nonviolent. If it's not, something's wrong. And usually the reason we don't like to meditate and do contemplation is because the minute you sit down, your violence starts lurking and raising its ugly head and you're going, you know, I'm too busy to do this. I'm so mad at that person at work or at the church or something. And you, you know, you lose your track. And that's, Henry would say, Henry told a friend of mine, literally at a little private mass once 30 years ago, who's not Henry's friend, who's a priest who he had a little private mass with just by chance. And Henry said, that's the good stuff. And I know what he means because meditation and contemplation should be leading to the beatitude of purity of heart, inner nonviolence. So you get to give all that stuff to Jesus and pray over it with Jesus and ask Jesus to take that from you and disarm your heart, and let Jesus give you his resurrection gift of peace. Here I give you my peace. And you and I, which is his gift of resurrection, very few people want that. You and I as contemplatives, we want it as followers of the nonviolent Jesus say, okay, Jesus, we're going to take your peace to heart and live out of there. And then we're going to accept the social, economic, political implications of peace for the planet. 
and followed him on the path to the cross, uh, really insisting that the world has to disarm and end war and end weapons, and every human being has to become a person of nonviolence, like Gandhi and Dr. King. This is the plan, and contemplation is critical for it. Folks, I want to encourage you to get John Deere's new book, The Beatitudes of Peace. This book is a lively, challenging rant that ties in social and creational injustice to the Beatitudes. It is a good book, and it is a rant. All the vitality that I felt in this conversation, John, I really respect and admire. And I think uh, I'm sure people have been energized just listening to you. I also hope all of you will register to join us for Voices for Peace on September 15th at 7 p.m. You'll find links on our Henry Nouwen website and in our podcast notes and links to any books or things that have been mentioned during this podcast. Thank you for being with us, John. It's always a challenge and an inspiration. Your passion and commitment to the nonviolent Prince of Peace is infectious. Thanks for having me, Carrie. You're so welcome. If you've enjoyed this Henry Now and Now and Then podcast, please take time to give us a thumbs up or a good review. You'll find links to anything we discussed today in our podcast notes. Until next time, peace and blessings.